Welcome to the Rocks Black Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and on my laptop screen are Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison. Bowie. Hello, Barney. Also on all our screens is this episode's very special guest, Stephen Daly. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Barney. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. All the best for seeing you. Steve is joining us from New York, where he's lived for, I think, over 30 years. But you can challenge that later if you want, Stephen. Stephen's written and beautifully for Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair, The Face and Spin, and many other publications, and is a rare example of what we might call the gamekeeper turned poacher, if one can describe drumming in orange juice as gamekeeping, which I suspect Stephen probably Sounds more like wouldn't. timekeeping to me, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> barely, barely. Um, Stephen, we're going to talk about orange juice and we're going to talk about how you morphed from drumming in orange juice to becoming the great writer that you are. Tell us how you fell in love with pop music as a Scottish youth. The NME really is the be-all and end-all. It was Charlie Murray, Nick Kent, Ian McDonald's, and, you know, some of the other, you know, Pete Erskine, Max Bell, eventually Parsons and Birchill. But the early development was I came back. We'd been in Africa for four years with my family, came back in 1972. So four years with after being a pop culture addict, Beatles, the Monkeys, uh, you know, Marvel Comics and all of that. Africa for four years, no television and only the world service. So after that deprivation, dropped back in Britain, 72 started to like like some of the soul music, some of the glamorous rock. But then I heard a record by a group called Led Zeppelin, of rock and roll. I guess that was a door to the counterculture and somehow started reading the NME probably 1973 and was influenced by things like their 100 best albums of all time when no one was archiving rock history. In 1974, they did the 100 best albums. So that was like the Koran, you know, you've got to understand it. So that was the that was the way into pop music, and then punk came along. But we can skip to that. And I guess a formative experience for me, and but at this time I knew James Kirk from Orange Juice from secondary school. And I'd met Edwin Collins, and me and James had been trying to do some music stuff. I guess this would have been the, maybe the summer of Eddie and the Hot Rods, you know, kind of thing. The summer of Eddie and the Hot Rods. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did I hear you correctly? <laughs> yeah, you did, you did. Nobody's called it that before, but it's here. It's hereby titled that. And, you know, that Live at the Marquee EP came out, and that seemed to indicate things were going in a certain direction. And, you know, Flaming Groovies and Nuggets, things like that. You, you know the, the sketch. So me and James were trying to put something together along these lines. And I met Edwin same year and the three of us got together that's when the you know things started rolling at the time so punk was a huge huge factor in fact uh, probably i was thinking about it earlier one of the main periods condensed periods would be may 1977 so myself edwin collins james kirk went to edinburgh to see the white riot tour which was in order from the start, from starting order, the Slits, Subway Sect, Buzzcocks, The Jam, and The Clash. And then a week or so later in Glasgow, two separate venues, Trathclyde University on the Saturday night, Talking Heads opening for the Ramones, and the Sunday night at the Apollo, Blondie opening for television. So that's nine groups in a very short space of time. And that was, you know, so 
that got our minds racing, obviously, if they weren't already. <laughs> and the new Sonics, am I right, came out of yes. that then? Yes. Yeah, that was NU-Sonic. It was the yes. name of a, a Burns guitar that James had, a sort of 60s guitar. And so at the time, actually, I was singing. I think James once described me as, he said, if you'd only ever seen a picture of Barbara Streisand, this is what you, you'd think she would sound like. <laughs> <My voice>. uh, <laughs> very, very backhanded compliment, if at all. And, um, but one, so we, we actually, I guess our guiding light for a while might have been, especially the subway sec, yes, a wire especially, because they were very stripped down and that seemed quite doable. So th- those early days, that, that would have been along those lines perhaps. And I actually came across a cassette, funnily enough, recently of one of the early gigs. We didn't hardly did any. But one of the things that I, I'm quite proud of is that we covered the theme tune from the Mary Tyler Moore show. <laughs> <laughs> now, if any of you rock snobs could tell me who wrote that. Sonny Curtis from Buddy Holly and the Cricket. Oh, my God. We, we had an wow. audio interview with him featured on RBP a couple of years ago, didn't we, Mark? And uh, you can hear that on Rock's Back Pages. He's a very genial fellow. Okay, nice. so very cool choice of cover version. And I must say, Husker Du got lauded for doing it much later, and they're about <laughs> the same age as us, and they come from fucking Minneapolis, <laughs> where Mary Tyler Moore was set. So uh, I think we scored one there. When did you first meet Alan Horn of postcard fame? That would be probably 1977, because I left school, and instead of going to university, I actually left school the month of the White Riot Tour, so my mind was all over the place. I got enough qualifications to go to university, but I didn't have the inclination. I didn't particularly think I would make a living at punk rock or anything, but who knows what I was thinking. Worked in a record shop. Alan was a customer and a man of pretty refined sensibility. So we got talking, and I was talking up the group I was in at the time. And I think at the time we we had we'd advertised in a punk fanzine for uh, a drummer for a New York band starting in the Bears Den area, which is a suburb of Glasgow. So, I mean, good luck with that one, you know? <laughs> and so we couldn't get a drummer. So I had to become the drummer. Edwin stepped forward to sing. We found a bass player. And we played a gig supporting Steel Pulse and the Simple Minds and a Glasgow very great punk group called the Backstabbers. We were bottom of the bill. The, the, the promoter just put us on as an act of charity. And that was it. That was the, the first gig Alan would have seen so that he thought there was something there that he could work with, even though he was not in the in the record business at the time. He was, he was I'll also say on that show, the cover version we opened with was we're going to have a real good time together, which we copied from a Patti Smith bootleg because I don't think Live 69 was even out available at the time. (laughs) So there you go, trivia buffs. Covers of covers of covers. Yes. Yeah. There's a brilliant quote from, so one of the pieces we're adding in connection with you being on the homepage, Stephen, is this piece Martin Aston wrote as part of a Q magazine series called Where Are They Now? I'm sure you remember such 
things. And it starts off with a quote from you. So we were the smartest band on the island at the time. We had no affiliation with anyone. We just created our own planet. Plus, we held London bands and the whole music business in some contempt. <laughs> Would you st- stand by those words 30 years later? Yeah, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing, but I can't back off of it. Yeah, it, it was definitely, <laughs> we were, we happened to be, you know, Edwin, James Kirk, very, very bright lads. Alan Horn, extremely bright. Yeah. And, and and also being from Scotland, we were quite, you know, bitter people as well. So, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Glasgow times punk equals that. But I, w- I was thinking, talking of Alan Horn, his flatmate was a guy called Brian Taylor, very dry guy who constantly put down anything we were doing, which is fine. You know, he's probably right. He was a rock <laughs> classicist. He would have the bootlegs. He, he would have, you know, Neil Young stuff, Patti Smith stuff, Bowie stuff. I still have no idea how he got plugged into all that. But he was a sort of quintessential rock snob. He also had one of the first VCRs in Glasgow. <laughs> this is leading to something here. And he, <laughs> he taped one of the things he had taped. You know, he didn't have huge piles of VHS tapes, but he did have, he did record, and you'll all remember this, when Jeff Bridges presented a rock documentary called The Heroes of Rock and Roll. And it was the first time that anybody, just as the NME had documented the greatest albums in 74, Heroes of Rock and Roll was a very kind of Rolling Stone, Jan Wenner, Baby Boom point of view on rock up to that point. So it's all, you know, you'd be yawning now because you've you've seen it all sliced and diced in a thousand different ways. But it was, you know, right from the 50s, from Elvis, Little Richard, all that, through the British invasion, et cetera, et cetera. The the reason I bring it up as a a recording was, I think it may have also also had a copy of Crack Actor. These are things that got sort of worn out with, uh, you know, viewing. And the timing of of the show coming after punk, as post-punk was getting going, what it basically did for us, I guess, was lifted the embargo on the 60s, right? Up to that point, the 60s was verboten. Mm-hmm. Nobody had 60s references as touchstones. And on this thing, uh, on this documentary, the ones that, I mean, there's things like the Ronettes, Be My Baby, just Motown stuff. But the ones I think that maybe captured our imagination was you'd have had um, uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, you have Buffalo Springfield doing for what it's worth and a great clip of uh, Do You Believe in Magic, The Loving Spoonful. So hmm. Alan, that was in addition to Alan Horn's musical education, as well as mine, Edwin's and James's. And James had an older brother who was into like West Coast stuff. So he had more knowledge out there. But I think Alan was probably, probably right about your age and also probably uh, got a zigzag education. You know, so Alan, I mean that in the most affectionate way that Alan yes. had that that to dip into the stuff that is now, you know, the foundation stones of things like Mojo, you know. Yes, yes. Well, Mark and I went to the University of Zigzag, didn't we? Yeah, we did. To some degree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> quite right, quite right. So just take me back to like the postcard era, because my memory of it is the first thing I really remember was like Edwin and Claire Grogan. You know, on the cover of NME. I mean, I know that's comparatively late. I think that was May 81. Yeah. And I don't think I'd read Paul Morley's piece about Alan coming down to London and sort of banging on John Peel's door and all of right. that. I think Paul maybe talked about that when he came on the podcast. But So this whole Sound of Young Scotland thing and this jangly, upbeat, 
rather sort of fey anti-macho anti-rockist thing that was mm-hmm. going on i mean how how do you remember that evolving Stephen? and were you really on board for that as a sort of aesthetic yes and no the sound of young scotland was my idea as a phrase it was tongue-in-cheek and it ended up okay. taking off just just because well it's a journalistic construct great. Right? It's the I kind of thing <laughs> kind of thing you would, you would say so yeah i was I'm not sure if I would have listened to Orange Juice if I'd not been in Orange Juice. It's, it's hard to say, <laughs> but uh, it was it was a it was a great thrill, and it was what it was. I think it's quite misunderstood, as as with everything. Sort of reductive logic gets applied, and there was a throwaway line I think from one of Alan Horn's press releases that mentions Sheik and the Velvet Underground in the same sentence. So suddenly that gets repeated, and, and next thing you know, it's been chiseled into your gravestone you know so <laughs> you know it wasn't that obviously wasn't that like the, the i think strange enough Stephen pastel who's the singer of the aforementioned indie group the pastels who's a guitarist i knew i know Stephen as well and he said in later years within the last five ten years the oranges was an experimental group and he was right because it wasn't if, if we had done she up underground and merged those two which basically the linchpin of that description would be Edwin's rhythm guitar playing, which is quite good, you know, but very proficient for his age, I guess, and it was in that style. But there was a lot going on other than that. And I guess what it was when the embargo was lifted on the 60s, it was like a, a an old trunk full of toys or something that you could play with. We, we didn't, we never, groups that came after Orange Juice, the kind of aesthetic directions that we pointed in, there were groups that came along and said, looked at the source at the our influences and just thought oh we could do that and they became quite imitative you know but at our stage all we want to do is we could do something as good as that and try it in this kind of haphazard way so the 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 songs you know that their tempo changes you know they're sort of structured in in strange ways there most of them have no choruses all the singles were in different genres but the, no, they weren't even in genres. So, you know, we didn't, we, the, one of them was, I guess, the song Blue Boy. It was a kind of a maybe modern lovers recognizable uh, yeah. format. But the rest of them were just us trying stuff out and often failing and, you know, getting it together bit by bit. So, you know, to go back to your question, we were definitely opposed to one, drugs, strangely enough, partly maybe under the influence of Jonathan Richmond, but we just thought, you know, hippies, drugs, that's all got to finish. We were also opposed to rock under the influence probably of things that Subway said, we oppose all rock and roll. We really thought that rock should and had to end in whatever inchoate thoughts that we had. Uh, and, um, yeah, and also wanted to be provocative and, and, and a bit poofy, if you like, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you know, Orange Juice, such an important you know, influence on, you know, you can trace a line from Orange Juice to the Smiths. You know, it doesn't sound the same, but it's interesting to hear you talk about that kind of 60s aesthetic. It's slightly received wisdom that you, there was a sort of creative differences thing going on in terms of, and correct me if this is wrong, but you weren't so happy about covering like Al Green's L-O-V-E love on oh, yeah. oh, the no, first you're album. Abs- yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. There, there's a... a- Strangely enough, the music press wraps around this as well. We did have a, a interesting relationship with the music press, often when we were doing interviews, 
we'd feel like we were doing their job for them because we were yeah. being smart ass and giving them good <laughs> quotes and all that. So it's it pretty, you know, heavy meta, as they say. But, <laughs> one of the factors that went when, we, when it came to choosing a producer for the first album, this is going to sound so weird, but hey, I've started. Julie Burchill gave a glowing review to a record on Rough Trade by Robert Wyatt called Stalin Wasn't Stalin, right? And I don't know if we ever even listened to the record because it was a cover of a, a very left-wing American doo-wop or even pre-doo-wop. It might be from the 40s. Or spiritual, actually, it was. And more of like a gospel record, except the lyrics were Stalin wasn't Stalin when he told Hitler to whatever, whatever. Like a genuine, you know, there's a term in America, red diaper babies, meaning actual, you know, left-wing when America actually had some proper form of socialism, at least in theory. So this this song came from that. Robert Wyatt covered it. Julie Birchall reviewed it, and she was very much, I think, on the time on the Stalin tip, as they say. Um, for, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But not thing, anymore. Not anymore. No, no <laughs> not anymore. No. And I think I think that the thing that turned us on or onto this this guy Adam Kidron. He Adam Kidron's producer. I think he'd already done Scritti Politi's "The Sweetest Girl." which was a great record, had no guitars in it, nothing to do with us, but a great record. And he also produced this Robert Wyatt record. And I think Julie Birchill called him Teenage Bill Spector from North London. So between that and the scritty thing, we thought, this guy is hot shit. Because when we would go to London ourselves, we wouldn't say, you know, the only people we were interested in asking about was what's John Lydon up to and what are Tony and Julie up to? That was the level of kind of mystique and importance in our imagination. So with Julie Birchall's stamp of approval for a record I don't think we ever listened to, and, and we went and got Adam Kidron. And it turned out Adam Kidron was a bit of a guy on the make. And not only that, the reason that Julie Birchall had given him a, such a glowing testimonial was that Adam's father ran Pluto Press, which published The Boy Looked at Johnny. Ah. Oh my gosh! So I've the never whole thing, heard this before. The whole thing was an inside job. So we were basically <laughs> going, going after one of Julie Birchall's mates, not based on his track record or strictly talent or whatever. Anyway, so we get into the studio, make the first record. Coming back to your point about Al Green, yes, Adam Kidron got in Edwin's ear and said, "Should really do this Al Green song," and I was just absolutely fucking appalled because we'd had very, very strict aesthetic guidelines up to that point. I'm not talking about anything written. I mean, a, a shared sensibility. Mm-hmm. And this just threw the train right off the fucking rails. And the reason the reason Adam Kidron wanted to do it was to go on his showreel, because he, he could then produce a track with, he could show that he could do horns. I can't remember if there was strings on it, certainly backing vocals, you know, girly backing vocals, all that. Yes. So it was a production job for him. So it was a dry run for him. And Edwin went for it. And I was vehemently opposed, vehemently opposed to doing it. And it came to the day in the studio, and I was somehow hoping it just wouldn't happen. It was so fucking ridiculous. I actually refused to learn the track. And they had to play the record in the studio so we could play along to it. <laughs> that was how fucking bad it was. But the really disturbing thing was I would have expected the people in the press who supported us, I thought they'd be listening carefully and all of that. But when the record came out, Polydor wanted to do it as a single. And if it came out, Nobody went, right, lads, the game's up. This is a fucking farce. They all went, yeah, the new one from Orange is going along quite nicely there, you know? Like, they never understood what we were doing, never cared anyway. It was just a bit, we, were, we just fitted a, a slot, you know? I, I don't think, when Paul Morley, I remember him giving a rave review to one of the singles, 
and to this day, I don't know if he ever really listened to it because one, it wasn't that good, and it wasn't. I can't remember what they'd call it, thing like super pop or something like that. And Orange just wasn't destined to be a pop group. For one, we weren't very popular, you know. So <laughs> I anyway. liked it. I liked how, your version of LOV. Oh, <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> oh shit! Yeah. Oh, yeah. Barney, could you take him out of the podcast? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Cut his line. Yes, yeah, definitely. Anything you desire, uh, Stephen, definitely. <laughs> no, but, I mean, in, in a sense. I mean, was part of your problem with covering that, not an aversion to Al Green, but just the sort of bogusness of like yes. skinnier feet, white boys doing soul music? Yes, Which no, was absolutely. a big part of the 80s story, wasn't it? Yes, Mark, it absolutely Mark, to was. to some degree, was part of that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was. He is no, white, he is skinny. He did make a soul record in yep. Muscle Shoals. I'm afraid so, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm guilty as charged. Oh, you went to Muscle Shoals? Okay. That's right. <laughs> All right, we're going we're gonna, to we'll get into Collins. that. With Edwin Collins. Yeah. Afterwards. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and certainly, so that would have been 1981 and came out in 82. And at that point, every group aspired to that, you know, having a horn section and, you know, black girl singers behind them, soul singers, whatever. So, yeah, we... we stumbled into that it was horrible horrible the other thing about it is it wasn't even i don't i still don't think it's a very good song i love everything almost everything al green ever did the song that we'd have probably been listening to at the time would have been bell i don't know if that right. yeah, pulled yeah. that off but that was still a classic there's a ton of great songs to choose from and i didn't think lov love was even that good to add insult to injury so <laughs> don't worry it's not you know it's not that i'm obsessed with it or anything <laughs> No, clearly not. No. <laughs> See what you've done, Barney. You opened up what your fucking body. See what you have done. So give me more Love is a walk down main street. Love is an art of the soul sweet. Love is something that can be beat. Did that experience? And your what I think was your sort of general disdain for sort of I don't know the likes of ABC and Haircut One Hundred and that whole pop sort of dream. Did that have anything to do with your, you know, eventually getting out of the music making racket and thinking about writing about it instead? Not really. No, I mean the disdain. Yes, that that existed, and I, I didn't. I didn't like uh, new pop. I didn't like smash hits. I liked it when, uh, to quote T- Kenneth Tynan, when something was at stake. You know, meaning the NME golden years, punk years, and so forth. So the eighty stuff. No, but no. The re- the reason I got out of it is just because of failure, basically. When after Orange Juice had recorded the first album, Edwin wanted to get rid of. James Kirk, the guitarist, because James had a very perverse reaction to success, even on the level such as we were having it, and would sometimes be you know, dressed sloppily or apparently seemingly not care about his performance, things like this, just out of kind of some perversity to undermine himself. Edwin was feeling a greater responsibility being the front man and the songwriter. A lot was writing on his shoulders. So, and I think he felt that the uh, imperative was to fulfill the kind of pop music dream to become successful the expectations of people were heaping on us and james was somewhat undermining that for whatever reason edwin wanted james to us uh, throw james out of the group i said no partly because james is a very sensitive guy and um 
I'd known him for a long, long time and thought it'd be just unfair. But anyway, so I, Edwin waited for a few hours and then called back and said, well, you can leave as well. So that's fine. Um, <laughs> so I, I went and formed a, a group with James uh, called Memphis. And uh, it was sort of slow progress. I don't know if he was a natural front man or whatever, but we, we ended up making a single for Alan Horn's uh, London-affiliated uh, label, Swamplands. Made yes. one single for them. Made a demo to do an album, put, put together all the songs for the record. And on, on the day when James was supposed to start laying down the vocals on that, he left London. We were in London. He, we'd been living in London. And he just disappeared. So that, <laughs> that just left me completely high and dry. So no album, no Jeez. nothing, no Memphis. So um, to quote one of Edwin's songs, after that, I went through something of a lean period, a decidedly <laughs> mean period. Are you in touch with Edwin? Yes, yes. Not as much as I'd like, but yes. And Grace is, is lady, his wife. Yes. And no, it's great. I'm also, uh, Edwin, as you may have or may not have noticed, has a great Twitter feed where he posts something, I think, every morning. Was a record with a kind of a hail everyone good morning from Helmsdale and something entertaining. But getting into print, cutting to the, the chase there. So there was a, a lacuna between the end of rock for me and the start of writing. I started doing reporting for the BBC. There was a magazine, weekly magazine show on BBC Radio Scotland called Bite the Wax, co-presented by Armando Iannucci, believe it or not. Ah, and oh. they needed somebody on the spot in London. Because there would be, particularly if you think American film directors, novelists, people who'd be in the Sunday supplements passing through London, they needed somebody in London. Uh, they didn't have anyone. So I would go and pick up the reel to reel from Broadcasting House, go and interview Mel Brooks or whoever it was, and send the tapes back up to BC Scotland. Then another friend of mine was working for um, a uh, magazine of, I think it was monthly or maybe it was every two weeks, I can't remember. Edinburgh-based called Cut, and they needed some content. I think it's just started up, and I was in a position being in London to, and also some of the interviews I did for the BBC. If it wasn't used, I could do it in print or whatever. So started doing some small articles for them. Then I guess this falls under the category. There's no site so impressive as a Scotsman on the make. Um, <laughs> the uh, Somebody gave me a ticket. It was expiring. It was a free Virgin Airlines ticket. It had two weeks left on it. And it was about to expire. Do you want to go to New York? Or are you not doing anything? You might want this. And what I did was I noticed that the Proclaimers were on a, an American tour. So I figured out the timing that I could get to New York, get a flight, meet their tour in San Francisco, write a story for Edinburgh-based cut magazine about the Scottish band coming to America, coming home in a way, because obviously that's where a lot of their influences, prime influences are. And I did that, and that became, a, through my machinations, that became ended up being a cover story, which is good for one's profile, even albeit way down on the food chain. And then I, being in America, I had access, this was obviously well before the internet, had access to a lot of information about what what was happening with music, films, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd be able to write up faxes. If you remember the fax machine, fax over <laughs> lists of ideas to, I guess I started working with a face around that point. So, um, you know, just by being where I was, that, that, that allowed me to jump the queue a little bit. You know? And did you just fall in love with Neil 
city like so many of us from the side of the pond do? I mean, was it like fairly quickly were you thinking oh yes oh yeah no, i want to yeah. stay here yeah yeah i mean well i didn't actually think i had the puissance to be able to stay in new york i loved it and had always loved it and as i said when when orange juice were in the first lineup or even before that in the new sonics our advert said new york band forming in the bears den area so <laughs> you know that's brilliant new, new york was was always in the forefront of my imagination certainly and actually edwin had an aunt who lived in New York. And so he was also very, worked at the United Nations, and he, he had a lot of like consumer goods and things from America. And he loved the velvets as well and all of this. I mean, he loved them before I did. So yes, everything, it was, everything was pointing to New York and, and it fulfilled all the promise, of course. And when I arrived, it was 1989, another summer, get down to the sound of the funky drummer. It was right smack in the middle of do the right thing, Public Enemy and all of that, Soul to Soul yes. were hitting. Okay. So there was a whole kind of aesthetic movement, if you like. There was a lot to write about. De La Soul came along, all of these things. So this the delight piece that we're featuring. It's a short piece, but it it rather captures for me how you must have been feeling about the the ultimate global village. It's a it's a wonderfully infectious piece about what delight represent. I mean, do, yes. do you remember sort of feeling that? I mean, was it just intoxicating being in in the middle of yeah of, it of was. all of that? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was. It, it's it sounds funny to say it now, but. As you know yourself, in New York, there's music. If you're walking down the street, there's music coming out of cars from every direction. And it was, it was it's a good way of putting it, it was intoxicating because the other thing that was on the on the come up in New York at that time was still house music, you know, and, and Delight obviously factored into that. So there's a lot of a, a confluence of a lot of things. In fact, I wrote a thing for Frank Owen, a great writer formerly of the Melody Maker, yeah, yeah, yeah. editor at Spin Magazine, and he was my end to spin because – he liked uh, British music, like black music, and that's what I liked and was writing about. So, so we clicked on that level. I remember writing for him sort of a, a chart. It was an article, a short article accompanied by a chart of all the collaborations that were going on, you know, between Delight, Bootsy Collins, uh, Soul to Soul, you name it. And I, mm-hmm. it was the first time I've ever had an article that was handwritten on paper because I had to write the chart out for the art director to turn into actual uh, graphic design, you know. So that it was pretty mind blowing what was going on. So that was your in, was it? That that's how you kind of got your foot in the door in terms of the New York music journalism scene. Yeah, Frank was my patron, and I was doing articles for him. The magazine was run by it was the second largest magazine in America, probably the biggest music market in the world. So the second largest magazine was run in a completely haphazard way. You know, Britain was much more competitive. You know, Melody Maker, Enemy Sounds, and then the monthlies, all right on top of each other, and the Sundays. So a very kind of tight uh, consciousness going on. Whereas over there, it was Rolling Stone was way over there, you know, run by Jan Wenner, drifting all over the place. Spin was in a position to take advantage of all this new music that was happening. And it wasn't all just dance music. It was, you know, the budding kind of Lollapalooza yes. movement. It was run by a guy whose father had bought it for him, Bob Guccione Jr., his yep. father, owned Penthouse Magazine, and he'd bought the uh, spin for his son. They had a falling out, 
and the son retained the title and got new investors in, but he was running it in a haphazard manner. Put it this way, when Nirvana broke, and we had an interview with them because the people who worked on the magazine knew people in Nirvana. One of them, Jim Greer, was going out with Kim Deal from the Breeders. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 some of the editors were pretty enmeshed in, in that in alternative music world and had got an interview with Nirvana when they were not doing interviews because as soon as they broke big, they, they you know, stopped doing interviews for a while. And somehow we got hold of one and... We're going to run it on the cover, and this was it would have been an absolute golden goal. And Guccione cancelled that, and he put his friend John Cougar Mellencamp on the cover. <laughs> and the God. John Cougar Mellencamp, he didn't have a record out, and it was a long, long Q and A interview about John Cougar Mellencamp having done an indie film. If you oh, can believe that, so you've got sake. Nirvana, this earth-shaking, yeah. paradigm-shifting life force happening and you've you've caught lightning in a bottle and he says no put it over there i'm going with melancholy so this is all to say that Fra- frank owen was a pretty mercurial guy himself quite opinionated and, and rightly so i'm um, coming from where he, he came from and he had run-ins with guccione and they ultimately had the terminal run-in and frank was fired then i get a call from bob guccione jr saying would i want to be music editor I didn't have editing experience, Barney. This does not happen, you know? And it wasn't going to be long for this world. I think I was there for about a year or so because it, it was just kind of nuts. But that was a, that certainly raised, again, raised my profile a bit. Did you find it quite a, a natural transition to go from making music to writing about it or was it a period of adjustment? Because, I mean, you talked about, like, giving such great quote in interviews. Yeah heavy meta yeah you know did, was, did that mean that you just kind of were like oh i'm just on the other side of this and this is all kind of natural or yes yes to, to answer your question briefly yes i'm not saying that that made me a good writer or a great writer or anything it, it but it it sort of imputes a, or, or conveys or some let's see i can lost for words now great um, <laughs> <laughs> ironically yeah exactly. <laughs> call me alanis so um they, the um yeah, yeah. There was the transition was fairly easy, and it, it got me onto the, the first level of writing. You know, so it wasn't completely foreign to me. As I said, with all due respect, it didn't mean I was any good, but I was adequate. You know, just about <laughs> adequate. Going back to what we we're talking about earlier, during postcard, our relationship with the press was so kind of enmeshed because we were sort of press darlings. We'd been obsessed with the music press, read everything, knew all the characters and all that, then found ourselves involved in it, you know, being reviewed and interviewed by Paul Morley, Dave McCulloch, Gavin Martin, you know, whatever. But I remember what distinctly one time Alan Horn very diligently kept a scrapbook of all Orange Juice's press. And I remember on one occasion sitting on the floor with Edwin and going through this big scrapbook and reading everything that had been written about us. And we were in tears of laughter, absolute tears of laughter. Not just, we weren't laughing at the writers. Some of them we were laughing at. Some of them we were laughing about the claims, the preposterous claims they were making on our behalf. And we were also laughing about how preposterous it was to be in a group in the first place. Just the whole thing suddenly just fell apart in front of our eyes. and We just couldn't stop laughing about it, the, the absurdity on both sides. So, yeah, having come through that kind of thing, one was a creature of the media i suppose i think you became a a very very good writer Stephen, if i may say so and that's illustrated by the two bigger pieces that are featuring on the home page i'd like to just briefly talk about them one is an encounter with Joni mitchell from 1998 and the other is this epic piece 
that you wrote for Vanity Fair about Sugar Hill Records, the Sugar Hill Gang, and Sylvia Robinson. We'll get to that yep. in a second because, of yep. course, that's so that's so New York. Oh yeah, but your Joni piece is fantastic, and I mean, you know, I remember seeing your byline in Rolling Stone at some point in the nineties and thinking that can't be the drummer in orange juice. Why, <laughs> why, would, he, why, why would he be anyway? Yeah. Obviously no, that's, it, it was. Know, yeah. There is a certain novelty to that. I suppose it is a good card to be able to play is like, Oh, you were in the drummer of orange juice. They don't say, Oh, you, you, you weren't very good. Or you guys were a bit all over the place. Or what were you thinking when you're playing on simply thrilled, honey, they just think, Oh, orange juice. Right. That's, cool for rock snobs and right now you're right oh so you can do both so there is it does add up to more than the sum of its parts yeah <laughs> did orange juice get a reference in the rock snobs dictionary that you co-wrote with david camp i mean that must no. Have been, no 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 but, but postcard postcard must have been in there no no i think david oh. wanted to put in orange juice and or postcard but i i think as i said you no. vetoed it yeah it would have been he, he's too much david's a a connoisseur, a great connoisseur of human frailty. And I think I would have, <laughs> I would have buckled under that kind of pressure, you know? Oh, but I mean, if postcard are not in the rock snobs dictionary, it just, it makes a mockery of the very concept. Anyway, I get it. I you get it. Point. You I, point. I get it. It's a conflict of interest. I get yeah. that. But so this Joni piece is fantastic. I mean, it's such a great, it's such a great piece. I just want to quote, there's one fantastic, because she always gives great quote, even mm -hmm. if it's, even if it's quite bitter and resentful and mm -hmm. self-regarding, but this, oh, yeah. she says it's great. She says, you say she felt patronized when she tried to explain her vision to potential collaborators, mainly men. That's my insertion. She said, music is like sex. It's difficult to give instruction to a man. <laughs> I, I it's, <laughs> one of the all-time great quotes Incredible, from a musician, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's just genius. Anyway, yeah. it's a fact you meet her at the at the Bel Air Hotel. Yeah, I think Nancy Reagan's having lunch. It's 1998. Just to repeat, so Nancy yeah. Reagan having lunch in the Polo Lounge. Yeah, and yeah. So you set the scene beautifully and. It's just an extraordinary piece about where Joni's at at this moment. She's just yeah. sort of really, really full of, of anger towards yes. the music industry. Yes. She's almost talking about the new album, Taming yep. the Tiger, as her sort of send-off. Because yeah. I'd interviewed Joni about four years before. Tell me how you – and she was in a really – she was really friendly and upbeat and in a good mood. So yeah. how do you remember her? What were you, what were your impressions of the great Joni Mitchell? Well, when I went in, she was a hero, you know, obviously to me, a child of 1975, hissing of summer lawns, all of that. Yes. Yes. And so I, it was a little bit daunting. I don't usually get nervous. I don't think there's anybody who's ever really made me nervous during an interview. Maybe Morrissey for different reasons, but Joni Mitchell, <laughs> yes. And I was right to be wary because she was pretty spiky. You know, she just absolutely took no shit, didn't try to accommodate questions or interpret what you were trying to say. If you weren't on point, she was not having it. And um, I'm wondering, and, and I couldn't ask at the time, but I believe this was the first time she'd been in Rolling Stone for many, many years because you'll probably remember this. Rolling Stone, for perspective, she is going back to her very first record, particularly Court and Spark, Hissing of Summer Lawns, an absolute titan. I mean, a monumental talent up there with any of them. And Rolling Stone, I think, at one year-end issue, was doing sort of 
awards or kind of jokey lists of the year, and they called her Old Lady of the Year. That's right, yeah, yeah. Meaning, I mean, for a start, these are feet San Francisco pansies uh, using kind of biker language, old lady. <laughs> you know, that's one offense. But then calling Joni Mitchell old lady of the year. Who the f- yeah. do you think you are? So I think she quite rightly took umbrage with the magazine. So I think that might have cast a pall on the whole thing as well. But um, it was it was worth it. I mean, she, you know, as they say, difficult but rewarding. She was absolutely good value. And as you know, there's no – she's up there with the, the most – thoughtful, self-realized music artists that there are. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Moving on to the great Sylvia Robinson, this <clears throat> this wonderful piece from November 2005 for, for Vanity Fair. I mean, look, to become a contributing editor at, at Vanity Fair is, you know, you're no, you're no slouch. That's probably the pinnacle as a kind of feature writer that you could reach at that at that point. Tell us about the genesis of this of this piece. Was it in the music issue? Was it yes. in the Vanity? Yes. Well, th- this will... Anybody who's written for magazines or publications, this might blow your mind. I was brought on board at Vanity Fair when they were starting their annual music issue as a theme. And um, I was supposed to write, you know, music pieces for it, among other things, but that was going to be a cornerstone. And it didn't work out that well with regards to the music. For example, the Sugar Hill thing was going to go in the 2001 music issue Oh, really? And it got bumped for space or whatever reason. And so that was, what, four years later? Four years it got can, bumped. <laughs> can you imagine? So, But I actually had to go back and, and do sort of extra reporting because a few things had happened in the meantime. I think the studio had burned down for one. But the genesis of the piece, believe it or not, circling right back, was Edwin Collins. <laughs> we, were, we were sitting in Edwin's house when I was over visiting London, getting drunk in, into the wee hours, and he's, he was just putting records on, as, as he did, or, or whatever. He put on something on all, all platinum. And he said, somebody should write something about Sylvia Robinson. Because she did this. She did Pillow Talk. She did, you know, going back to the 50s. Um, Mickey and Sylvia, yeah. Love is Strange, yeah. Love yeah, is Strange, yeah, 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 yeah. Which became, obviously, a huge record. Dirty Dancing and other soundtracks. It's kind of a so, so she did. She's kind of a zealot of, yeah. of black music. So she did that. She actually got Ike and Tina Turner, the first Grammy nomination, their record called It's Going to Work Out Fine. I think it ended up being on Sue Records, and Juggy Murray took the credit. But Sylvia Robinson played guitar on it, produced it, and paid for the studio as well. She told me in quite vivid detail about how it all worked. She was on a bill at the Harlem Apollo with Ike and Tina Turner. It's Going to Work Out Fine was sort of a stick that Bo Diddley had, and he presented to his record label, among other things. They didn't want anything to do with it. And he said to Silva, you can have it. I think she wrote maybe some additional stuff on it. Did that for Argentina Turner. Went away, had kids in the 60s, came back in the 70s with all platinum. Coming back to Al Green from earlier, uh, she wrote Pillow Talk for Al Green and took it to Willie Mitchell. I think she said she met him at a record convention somewhere in the South in the hotel room. She played him this tape of her singing Pillow Talk, pitching it to Al Green. And I've read that Al Green didn't like it because of the sexual content and all that. No. Willie Mitchell said no because the way that a pillow talk is written is in a pretty strict meter. 
And he quite rightly said that Al Green wouldn't have room to do his thing in and around the melody, mm-hmm. you know? So that was, that was all it was. The funny thing is she puts the uh, demo away and reel to reel puts it away in a box. And somehow a couple of years later comes back across it, listening to it. Someone says, oh, some should do that song, release that song. And she actually put the demo out as a single. Oh. And it ended up being like a top 10, number yeah. one R&B hit, top 10 pop hit. She's back on TV wearing hot pants as a 43-year-old mother, you know, this kind of thing. Just <laughs> crazy stuff. She deserves a biography. Someone really should write her biography. I mean, yeah. the, the article's fascinating. The, the, the Sugar Hill Records, in a way, was like the last of the 50s and 60s style independent labels. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Right down to their business practices, which oh, yeah, every no. bit is unscrupulous. Yeah. Well, well, the, the connection there is, and I'll, I'll just say... Mo that, Levy, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. But I was just going to say that growing up in Britain in the 70s, all platinum was more of a thing than it would have been in growing, growing up in America. In America, mm-hmm. they had the very occasional hit, but mostly regional hits or R&B soul radio hits. In Britain, things like The Moments and Whatnot, Girls was in, as you know, yeah. in the top 20. Yeah, so they, yeah. were, they were quite a regular feature. And also they made what I would argue, seeing Evelyn Champagne King over Barney's shoulder, I would argue that Shame, Shame, Shame was the first disco record, 1974. Well, you could you you could argue that he said through slightly clenched teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. And, oh, the, 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 here, here's a, talk, talking of Zelig, the, the the record is sung by Shirley Goodman, right? Um, Shirley and Company, Shirley Goodman, yeah, yeah, who made in the fifties "Let the Good Times Roll." Fantastic, Shirley Lee, record. Yeah. Yep, and yeah, then yeah. she ended up singing backing vocals on "Exile and Main Street." It's just fantastic. And I mean, then, you're, you're, I love these, yep. these these black women who last for like forty years making incredible, yeah, and, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Sylvia, yes, to your point, it was the in a way the the last of the Indies because yeah. one of the things that caused a bit of a crisis in Sugar Hill was, from what I was told, anyway, it wasn't there at the time, but we're talking about early 80s, 81, 82, 3, that the distribution network that they were part of also had other, I think I think it was Arista, Motown, Chrysalis, I think it was. Anyway, these other indie labels had gone and found major deals or licensing deals, yeah, yeah. whatever. And I, from what I can gather, this weakened the distribution network that Sugar Hill was part of mm-hmm. and that they grabbed for a major deal and ended up with MCA. So, yeah. but they they were very independent in the article. Certainly in the interview, Sylvia talks about recording rappers' delight in just I think it's in two takes altogether, and it ends up they've got so much so many uh, bars in this fifteen minutes long, and she says we're going to release it as it is. And her, I think her husband was uh, doubted this, like how can we possibly? Yes. No, no, it's got to be as it is. You know, we're not like the rest. We're independent people. Which I thought <laughs> was great. What a great I, statement I, I, of intent. As a one-time DJ, I've got to say that it's a great going for a piss record. You can put on Rapper's Delight. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ten minutes to go to the lab and come back with a glass of wine and carry on. There you go. But I also heard that the studio burning down was something to do with an insurance scam. Uh, yeah, I don't think that was ever proved, but I wouldn't right. be surprised. But the, the other little Alanis Morissette twist there is one of the very few things recovered was the urn with Joe Robinson's ashes in them. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. 
Oh dear. I mean, it's a it's a tremendous piece, full of wonderful details, Stephen, such as the fact that Doug Wimbish had had heard this rumor that Joe Robinson kept two pearl-handed revolvers uh, somewhere in his his office. And That's right. Wimbish, who obviously played on Rapper's Delight, was was terrified that Joe Robinson was was going to come after him. So there's lots of amazing things like that in the piece. The other thing, subsequently, they stole Good Times for Rapper's Delight. They also stole mm. a great Liquid Liquid track for what's right. White Lines. That's mm. correct. And yeah. Liquid Liquid finally got around to suing them and Sugar went belly up before they could, it went to court. So they never saw a penny from it. That's astonishing. Yeah. You mentioned Nile Rodgers going to a, dis- a, a midtown disco called, I think, Leviticus and hearing Rapper's Delight for the first time. Hang on a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can you imagine? Listen, going back to 1993, you interviewed Suede for Rolling Stone, and they were like the big, like, next big music cover thing back in the UK. Yes. You're you're in New York and you're sitting down with Brett Anderson and Matt Osmond of Suede. And I think the the, the debut album is about to come out, right? Or it's just come out in the yeah. US. And this is before they're the London Suede in that rather sort of oh. undignified way. Ter- yeah. I mean, imagine having to call yourself the London Suede. Anyway, oh. it's a gr- so you wrote this great piece and we've got the audio, thanks to you for that. And so, Mark, would you tell us a little bit about this week's audio? Yeah, it, it's, it's terrific. It's Brett Anderson and Matt Osman. It's very interesting stuff. They talk about, you know, how when they got together, how they were first perceived. Well, actually, we as well listen to the first clip because they felt they were sort of dismissed as a joke by many, many people. So, Jasper, let's have a listen to the first clip. And anyone connected with the British music industry saw us as a joke for about two years. <laughs> and there's the shoe guys and buttons and all the Manchester thing and like that. We didn't do those sort of things and like that. Because I get, when we play it's quite it's quite sort of passionate and emotional stuff when we actually play. We do we do kind of, we do put a lot of performance into it. That which, which was something which was incredibly unfashionable at the time. Right. And so therefore, when you're kind of being, you're giving everything, and people actually aren't giving you anything back, it kind of like can be a bit twisted sometimes. And I think probably lots of our early gigs, when, when no one was interested, we just came across as arrogant and slightly bitter mm-hmm. and slightly strange. And people just didn't like, didn't like that. And so it was kind of a bit of a vicious circle right. to break. And we actually managed to break it by um, actually not playing for ages, writing and coming back. You know, you can't really talk about the nature. Well, they various stages talk about this great melody maker is you know the greatest band front page sort of headline, and they they talk about the nature of being overhyped and the problems that have. Another clip we can listen to, they, they talk about their unnostalgic English sensibility. That's an English sensibility, but which isn't informed by, by nostalgia for an 
of notion of England. So let's have a listen to this. This is great. Very good point. Uh, uh, absolutely. I'm mean, the one thing about these guys is they're bright. They're they're, mm. they're interesting, interesting guys. You know. Oh yeah. I mean, it's interesting also period because they're just about to record what became Dogman Star, which was the last album that Bernard Butler did with them. So yeah, they, they, they talk about sort of being provincial, about how the the importance of the Smiths, though the feeling that the Smiths had stood still and never progressed the way that they should have, which is a very easy thing for a band to have just done one album to say, it has to be right, said. Right. Their relationship <laughs> with Nude Records, how they are on the smallest independent in England, but are marketed in the, every rest of the world by CBS, one of the biggest multinationals. They talk about being covered by Morrissey and being caught by US companies. And the, the play clip at the end of the podcast, which is basically about, because they're in America, the idea is they're being launched in America by CBS. So a, there's a chunk of the conversation is about the notion of making it in America, which of course never really happened for them at all. Right, or right. D- didn't really happen for any of those Britpop bands. No, oh, no. Honestly. I had a brief stint of writing stuff for the enemy. Okay. Yeah. And um, one of the things I was sent to do was the teenage fan club coming to America. It was around the time I think of bandwagon esque, maybe yeah. just after that. So they were writing pretty high, but they're, you know, they've got their feet on the ground. They're not deluded about their, place in the scheme of things and i remember saying to the editor at the time because they would go on radio shows and, and dj would say what's your name again and all, all <laughs> yeah. these sort of you know just a series of kind of slightly spinal tap things that happens to bands on the road you know so it was a mildly funny and, and a, a bit embarrassing at times so i was saying to the editor right here's what happens when they come to america they go through this and this and it's it's you know kind of embarrassing and rough and all that i'm going i'm going to write that so it's not the teenage fan club take America, right? It's not because that's the the recurring cover yeah, yeah. line. And of course, when the piece came out, the cover line was the teenage fan <laughs> club take America. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 What was your kind of interpretation of Britpop being kind of expat Scotsman living in New York? How did Britpop feel from that angle? Good. Good. I mean, I didn't. I'm just, I'm saying good because it produced some interesting groups. I, I think. Oasis were not one of them, uh, you know, <laughs> but and that's what most people associate with Britpop. But if you're talking about things like I did, I interviewed Suede at the time, Blur, and not connected, but the Stone Roses as well. Just, just so I was all, you know, quite um, happy to, to see groups like this uh, coming out of Britain. The only thing is to to break America. 
you have to be, I think one of the main assets you need is, is just basic stamina yeah. you know, to keep coming back and touring and also consistency, you know, musical, sort of some development, some consistency. And also, I, I guess one of the rocks that they sometimes crash on is that, you know, that British people don't understand that rock is a verb, if you like, <laughs> you know what I mean? That it's not, that it's, the, it's never quite, and Suede's a great example of that because they were, you know, aesthetically exquisite, you know, that Brett Anderson was sort of quite a literary figure and, um, you know, they, they had quite a, a very evolved sensibility, as you were saying, mm-hmm. Englishness without the nostalgia, they'd thought it all through, but coming to America, that doesn't really get you very far. Sure. It's, I mean, I hate to be you know, whatever, reductive about it, but it's, it's sort of a re- recurring theme. Actually, one of the, one, the, the, there's a great sort of metaphor for this is the day that I interviewed them. I think it was early in the springtime, New York, and there had just been a horrendous snowstorm and they'd go off the plane wearing little you know, desert boots and the cheesecloth <laughs> blouse-ons and things. So they, they actually had to go. They were, it was in Midtown at, near the record company, and they had to go to TJ Maxx to buy a bunch of socks and T-shirts and things because they'd, uh, they'd come from the wrong climate. I mean, seriously, I mean, this is idea of a, a successful British invasion has existed obviously ever since the Beatles. Yeah. And there's, there's been, particularly in this country, in the U.K., this idea that, you know, making it in America is a sort of critical thing. It's happened sort of twice, British Invasion and then the 70s hard rock bands who would do exactly what you said, which is what later on Ersatz grunge band Bush did, which is to tour and tour and tour. Oh, yeah. That was the way you do it. It's all changed now. Well, everything's changed. But yeah. no, but this, this, this British idea that we've got to make it in America is really sort of, corrupted things yeah, yeah i mean so in the third clip which is mark says we'll hear after the episode ends you you actually are the last voice to be heard and you say something like just because people in the record company are being nice to them they think they're going to become the new beatles or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and a year later of course that nobody in the record company is talking to them anyway so yeah, that's right. uh, it's it's a bit dismal isn't it but um i mean i i really enjoyed going back to to that time and you talk in the piece that materialized from this interview you talk of this triptych of instantly classic singles the drowners metal mickey and animal nitrate i I managed to dig this out of my an old pile of cds the metal mickey thing so the Drowners. so it's, it's about 20 years since the drowners came out i still remember hearing that for the first time and just thinking in a way that i hadn't for such a long time my god this is just a really fantastic pop single and mm-hmm. I, and i and i listened to it again ahead of this episode and i thought it still thought it is a fantastic pop single i really hate to do this to you it's about 30 years since it came out not 20 30 there you go it's all <laughs> one decade i'm so sorry Bobby. <laughs> do you know what you get to my age and one decade just blurs into another and it just no it, it's be you, you achieve a state of timelessness really so <laughs> 70 years ago the drowners came out um anyway i mean yeah just they still sound really really good i really think that those first singles were were brilliant and as mark said you know they're really interesting articulate guys in this interview you know i interviewed them once around that time probably around the time you did and and found them to be just really thoughtful interesting guys i saw an early gig they were great and i sort of wish they'd be they did reinvent themselves and there are great i think coming up Uh, is a pretty uh, great i would say one 
caveat about that whole Britpop wave of mm. the likes of Suede, Pulp, and Blur. Yeah. It was the beginning of the middle classification of English rock and roll music. It's true. The, the, these people were essentially middle class boys, would be art student types, and so on and so forth. And yeah, I think it's the beginning of that, which has actually been incredibly harmful to British pop music. Um, a funny oh. foot, footnote to that, Mark, because I, I, I was uh, I went to a function last night. Do you remember those functions? Yes. And yeah. Everett, Everett True, Everett True yes. was there, the legendary yes. Everett True. And he has moved to Haywards Heath. And I mentioned that I've been listening to this Suede interview where Brett and Matt are being fairly disparaging about their hometown of Haywards Heath. And he said, actually, I think they grew up in a much posher part of Haywards Heath <laughs> <laughs> than they ever let on, which I just think is, that's a, a wonderful a serendipitous footnote. That's um, fantastic. Wow. <laughs> Although I, I think I would probably disagree with Mark about uh, the middle class thing. I mean, I, I think Damon Alburn from Blur is on the wrong side of the line, and I'm not sure if Jar- Jarvis Cocker is actually middle class, but I do know what you mean. But one thing I say about the art school middle class types is that they were the ones who created punk. When well, pr- when punk fulfilled its promise of, of, of going to over to the proletariat, that's when it turned to shit. No, no that's, <laughs> that, that's fair enough. It's also fair to say that the, it was the art school mob who created the British blues boom in the first place, the first early British rock and roll. Sure. Was, you know, so art school's a big part of the English rock and roll history story. Oh, yeah. But, but uh, you know, I think my broad point stands, I mean, with, with obvious exceptions like the moronic Oasis. Oasis. Anyway, I think we've probably killed. That, okay, that's we? it. Yeah, that's done. <laughs> All right, we've we've done Swade and the dawn of Britpop and the aftermath of it, and it's time to talk about Lizzo, who's just released her oh, new album. Yes, and indeed. we are fans of Lizzo. I don't know where you stand on her, Stephen, but, but I'm, I'm just going to hand over to Just because the featured artist on the homepage is Lizzo. Three pieces, and I think Jasper infected us with a with a, a love of Lizzo. <laughs> So four or five years ago, when four years ago, when "Cause I Love You" came out, so so just so tell us where when you first heard Lizzo, became aware of her. Just, Lizzo, yeah, Lizzo, Lizzo. For me, it was like I guess about four years ago, because "Cause I Love You" came out, I think three years ago, and before that, she was kind of a sort of alternative hip hop curio, one could say, mm-hmm. you know, that, that someone that people knew and liked and had been around for about five years or even longer but hadn't really broken through. And she came out with this record, Boys, which I was just obsessed with for a bit. I just thought it was like, I still think it's an absolutely amazing record. And then the year after, 2019, is when she just became one of the biggest stars on the planet with Because I Love You, with, with that, that album and Truth Hurts and a slew of hits. And I just think she's great because, I mean, she's she's so herself and so musically interesting and touches on so many different things coming from that hip-hop perspective Mm. originally started as a rapper but as it turns out has an incredible singing voice as well and she also i think politically speaking in terms of what she represents her body positive activism Mm -hmm. her fatness the way that she owns that i think she's just been a, a great force on a few different fronts as far as you know that soul pop sound that she's revived to a certain extent but is also infused with hip-hop i love and so i you know i really rate lizzo really like her a lot i mean i haven't listened to the new album tons yet we're featuring the pieces that we're featuring are a sort of mix of a profile from 2013 when paul lester in his prescient way made her 
new band of the day in The Guardian. So really, really early. And then a live review that I believe we've talked about on the podcast before, David Bennon in Metro. Mm-hmm. And then a piece that I found this week for the feature that we're doing on her, which is Maura Johnston in the Boston Globe in September 2019. The year of Lizzo took its time getting here. And that's a, a kind of good profile for a newspaper of, of Lizzo. You know, it's actually a preview for a, for a show that she's going to do in Boston. But she just goes into how Lizzo came to be. She writes, musically, Lizzo's propulsive soul pop is a much needed antidote to the smoothed out bummers offered by far too many DJ duos and soul singers. Message wise, her pushing for sometimes brutal honesty, tender self-compassion and shouting feelings up to the rafters provides an antidote to Instagram filtered perfection. Lizzo has been a megastar and waiting for a while now. And to see and hear her thriving in a year that's been defined by bleakness is one of this decade's most delightful pop pleasures. And I agree with that. I think it's a really nice take. I think she's absolutely fabulous. I mean, you know, as Barney said, thanks to you, Jasper, in the office playing her all the time. It's like, this is just fantastic music. I've listened two or three times to her her new album. Hasn't quite caught me yet. I'm not sure that the great songs are on it, which the the, the previous album was, I rather agree. was full slightly of. disappointing. Very slightly, you know, slightly. Um, it's also got like Max Martin as one of the producers and so on and yeah. so forth. So that's all a bit formulaic, you know. But having said that, I, I think I, I think she's marvellous. I really do. Stephen, are, are you a fan? Have you heard Lizzo? I, I am a fan yeah, from yeah. what I've heard. I haven't actually read anything about her. Well, not haven't read much about her. So I'll be going to read one or two of those pieces. My last memory of Lizzo was, I guess it was just as the pandemic was hitting. My daughter is now 13, might have been 11 at the time, mm-hmm. wanted to go and see her. She doesn't really ask to go to concerts. And looking up the tour dates and things and trying to get figure out which city and how this was going to work and then that all just went away yeah so i could have had a good lizzo story but i don't (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think one of the things i mean i I haven't listened to the new album that much and on first listen i was kind of in the same boat as you guys that it's a little bit less kind of vibrant Mm. but i still do think there are some good records on it and she still is doing creative stuff like the final track samples of all bands coldplay samples yellow by Coldplay, but actually makes it amazingly tolerable. And it's a, you know, it's, it's, I, I like that song and, I, and I'm kind of looking forward to exploring the album a bit more. And another thing I, I wanted to bring up was that when this album, when one of the singles came out, Girls or Girls, which is a kind of reinterpretation of the Beastie Boys mm-hmm. to become a kind of feminist anthem, which is which in itself is a fun thing to do, the musical content of the record aside, is that that song had a lyric on it that was featured an ableist slur i'm just going to quote the word so that people know what it's about is the word spaz as in spastic you know and she was called out for that on twitter there was a big storm about that because how can someone who's so progressive in so many other ways kind of ignore that aspect of it because it's you know a damaging word that gets used to to disparage people with cerebral palsy and, and other things and so the interesting thing was her response to it was from basically one day to the next, she re-recorded that line of the song and re-released the record. You know, she basically just took ownership of the thing, said, look, this was my fault. I got this wrong and I'm going to fix it. And she fixed it. Mm. And for me, that's kind of a radical act as a pop star, not to just be like, you know, screw all you guys. I'm the big name. I'll do what I want. And I thought that was yeah. a really positive um, way it, to handle that. It's also worth, so, pointing so again. It's worth pointing out that that's possible these days in a way that it simply yeah. wouldn't have been in the old yeah. days. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
boy. You tryna play court like a game boy. Hit my phone, boy. Is your homeboy? Are you alone, boy? Come give me dome, boy. Got a boy with degrees, a boy in the streets, a boy on his knees. He a man in the sheets. Sheesh, it's all Greek to me. Got this boy speaking Spanish. I hit my beard. Baby, I don't need you. So from one kind of funk to another, if we go back to previous era, we lost, well, yesterday the news came through that the great Michael Henderson was no longer with us. And so <laughs> I've, I've asked Mark, just, just give us a little kind of thumbnail well, intro. You say, you say the great Michael Henderson, he's a man who played on some of the greatest records of all time, on some of the worst records of all time. The worst records of all time being his own. Oh. Uh, he, he, <laughs> I, he, he was Stevie Wonder's bass player. Miles Davis stole him for his Rose Road band. And he's on three or four of the greatest Miles Davis records. I mean, Jack Johnson on the corner, get up with it. He's all over those records. Jack Johnson, the very opening track right off, is basically Michael Henderson. He started this bass riff. Billy Cobham joined in, John McLaughlin joined in, and Miles came herring in out of the control room into the studio and said, carry on, what, what are we doing here? You know, yeah. absolutely fantastic stuff. And then he went seamlessly over to being the most saccharine of soul crooners imaginable. His solo career is just loaded with just grippy R&B of the absolute worst sort. Stuff often done with Norman Connors like You Are My Starship. Unlistenable. I mean, I like, <laughs> I like, I like a soppy soul ballad. You know, I've got no problem with the form. His interpretation of it is just ghastly. I have to challenge you on on one or two things. There are solo albums with great things on them. Do It All starts with a track called Playing on the Real Thing, which is absolutely magnificent. Yeah, but so no, one bought very, it, no one bought his stuff for his funk. For the, no, but, they, but there is they, they good funk his... there. There is good funk yeah, yeah, in but those records. But they weren't buying his records for that. His, his audience became... The, the, the saccharine audience. I love that. So the piece that we're adding about Michael Henderson is by David Nathan from yeah. Blues and Soul in 77. And so what it says is that Michael was not interested in jazz at all. And when Miles initially tried to nick him from Stevie, he just, he said, no, I, I, I don't want to play with you, Miles. But Miles wouldn't let go. And, and I called him up and promised him there would be no jazz. In the music, <laughs> so, so Michael said, "Okay, I'll come to New York." Then I mean, it's just hysterical. Of course, New York, well-known jazz <laughs> free zone. Jazz. No jazz there. But I mean, that stuff he did with Miles is fantastic. Really I mean, that's, is. A, that's a great, great Miles. It band. is really great. Yeah. yeah. So farewell, Michael Henderson, or half of Michael Henderson, half of Michael. <laughs> Well, are you oh. saying are you saying fair ill to the other? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't really have, well, we've not had a chance to talk about David Dalton and we really don't have a lot of time, but I, but because we had him on the podcast in March and he was a joy and I regarded him as a friend. I just wanted to, to note his passing for any listeners. He's someone I so wish I had a chance to sit down and have a drink with. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So do listen to the podcast. That is going to tell you more about David Dalton than any of us can here and now. But he was one of the great American rock writers and biographers and was in fine form in March. I mean, I've seen posted on our on our Facebook page, you know, my God, he sounds so, you know, it's hard to believe that he went so quickly after sounding so yeah. on the ball in March. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. only March. Do we you know, know what he died of? It was cancer. Oh. So I don't know whether it was something that it just, you know, came on very, very quickly. I don't, don't know, but I adored that man and yeah. got to know him well. And it's, it's a, a great sadness and a huge loss. He was 80 years old, but he was always a young old fella. You know, <laughs> he really was. He never turned into an old man, bless him. So, God bless you, Really David. charming, yeah. really funny, yeah. really just a delightful. Yeah, sad. Stephen, did you ever meet meet? Did you ever meet him? Sadly, I never did. No, yeah. I would have loved to because yeah. uh, that's uh, you know the stories he'd have had about the golden age. You know. Oh yes, yeah. Well, he, he told some great stories about all those luminary figures um, on, on that podcast. So it's well worth hearing. It really, really was. I mean, and and hair raising, of course, in places when he talks about herring back to the Spahn Ranch to uh, get oh, his gosh. girlfriend the hell out of there before they get hip to what's going on. Anyway. Good Lord. The Spahn Ranch being the Manson family. Yes, the Manson yeah, Ranch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant. So, Mark, can you tell us just about a few pieces uh, you've added? I'll, and, I'll, Stephen, I'll, just jump in if there's anything that sort of prompts a thought. Just just, just jump in. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is quite a long podcast. So yeah. <laughs> and Philip Elwood sees... Pink Floyd at the Winterland in San Francisco in 1967. I had no idea that Pink Floyd had actually toured America then. And he says, the trouble is that Pink Floyd are not musically competent to pull off what they try. Any jazz group, for instance, would destroy a drummer as sloppy and inconsistent as Floyd's, and the pseudo-mystical sounds and stance in the vocals tends to invalidate most of the total effect. It's, it's quite a refreshing. <laughs> <sort of thing. laughs> I kind of like Robert Shelton profiling Jerry Jeff Walker and Joni Mitchell in the New York Times in 1968, says, a 24-year-old Canadian with long blonde hair, high cheekbones and a fine voice, she writes like a poet and strums like the devil. Using a lot of unusual and experimental guitar tunings, she heightens her moody songs with doleful accompaniments. It's a very good early take on Nice, on, yeah. And Journey. Robert yeah. Fripp being interviewed by John Tiven for International Musician and Recording World in 1975. <laughs> so uh, Tiven asks, why have you finally disbanded Crimson after all these years? To which Robert Fripp says, well, there are three reasons. The first one represents a change in the world. The second reason is that the education I was receiving as a young man, which I considered to be the best, was no longer the best. I wasn't learning what I needed to. And the third reason, the energies involved in the music were no longer appropriate to my way of living. I mean, that's a Robert Fripp answer if you've ever heard one. <laughs> it's absolutely marvellous. Uh, last, last, this is all from uh, a week ago. The last one from a week ago is the great techno King Quan Atkins interviewed by Calvin Bush for music in 1995. And he says, going to some of the big raves in places like Holland, where every track is 180 BPM, and you have this real fascist element to it, but people are calling it techno, that makes my stomach turn. He's absolutely right. That's yep. really, really, really interesting. Okay, this week, Nick Tosh's review of Yoko, Yoko Ono's approximately infinite universe, Rolling Stone. Is that shit or is that shit? I mean, is there any need to dissect <laughs> or discuss the faults of such sticks? 
The beatnik poet some Perry Mason used to write better stuff, for Christ's sake. Wow. Later on, he says, since when does the staggering, ever-expanding universe have anything to do with some rich kid snivelling about the turmoil within her run-of-the-mill soul or crooning philosophical and political party-line corn that went out of style with last season's primetime TV? Fantastic. And he, and he finishes by saying, it's not just me. I know a guy who's in the forefront of the avant-garde, and he doesn't like it either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so did, to- did Toshis ever give a good review to anything? <laughs> I mean, the thing about Toshis is that some of his stuff is now you read it and it's politically makes your eyes water. You know, it's as uncorrect as it can be, but he can also be outrageously funny. In this infinite universe, I know a girl who's in constant hell. No Moving on, funnily enough, to Miles Davis by interviewed by Roy Carr in 1986, and he's fulminating against Sting had basically filled his band full of jazz players. He says, "If Sting doesn't want what they've got to offer, then he might just as well hire some white folks. Better still, use a sequencer." Uh, (laughs) then he says I love the way Sinatra sings I learnt a phrase from listening to all his early recordings which is a really interesting I thought that was a fascinating quote that's a good note lastly Adam Sweeting interviews Dusty Springfield around the time when she'd been resurrected by a pet shop boy she says with the pet shop boys there's always something slightly off centre that I like I'm a bit off centre as well we get along fine (laughs) <laughs> so that's wonderful. my love that, that's I'm just going to mention three things I'm not going to quote from them but three pieces that I added that were just really notable one is this fantastic retrospective about Canned Heat by Max Bell from 2015 classic rock it's it's Max right. one of my favorite you mentioned Max earlier he was always one of my favorite like unsung heroes really of the enemy yeah. and um He's written some great retrospective pieces, and the story of Canty really is a blood curdling epic. I mean, they was just they were a really fucked up bunch of guys, you know, serious drugs and crime and all i mean it's it's it really makes the hair stand on your end this piece i really recommend that and the stories of you know the the just the tragedy of al wilson and then bob height it just it's 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 got tough to read, read. i've it's got great. to read that i saw them in hyde park in 69 i think mm-hmm. just after al wilson had died i think it's like a week after he had died right, and they, right. they they went ahead and played and I, I saw them a couple of times. I was quite fond of Candy to my youth. Yes. You know, I mean, that yeah. didn't last long. And I can't listen to them now, that boogie no. nonsense, you know. There was something about Al Wilson that was extraordinary, I think, in those 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 hit records. Yeah. They're still kind of eerie and weird. Yeah, on, on the Road Again. The I road love again. On the Road Again, yeah. actually. I, I really, that yeah. record, it's a great, like, car music, driving music. Yes, it is. It's marvellous. His voice was a huge loss to that band because yeah. his peculiar... Quite sweet, quite high voice. Mm. Yeah. 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 So anyway, that's a great, great read. Long piece, riveting. Another very long piece, Jeffrey Himes on Earl King. Oh, yeah. The great, great New Orleans guys. That was a good time to roll and all that. Anyway, that, that's that's a lovely piece. Earl King wrote Come On, which Jimi Hendrix covered in Electric Ladyland. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that that's a terrific piece 
from 2021, very recent piece. Right, again, retrospective, Earl had been dead for some years at, at that point. And the last is just because our friend Pete Selby is this week publishing a book about World of Twist, which many listeners won't have heard of, but there's a book that they're, one of their co-founding co members, Gordon King, has written called When... <laughs> When does the mind bending start? Which I thought <laughs> might a appeal to you, Mark. But world, world of Twist were a very, very unusual, strange group. And John Robb wrote a piece for his Louder Than War website, in which she basically calls them the great lost Manchester band. They made one album called Quality Street. And I remember people like Simon Reynolds really sort of raving about them. And it's really worth going back to that record. There's a, it's a great record called like a song called Sons of the Stage, which is terrific. Anyway, this is John Robb kind of really backing up that claim, you know, way before Oasis and co, World of Twist. And Bob Stanley's another big fan. And that's the long read feature for this week on the homepage. Jasper, what, if anything, have you got for us? I'll just, again, you know, briefly mention a couple of things from last week, first of all, because they're, they're great and I like them. D'Angelo, Groove is in the Heart, with thanks to Mark for sending that to us, Vivian Goldman, in the Daily Telegraph, interviewing D'Angelo when he's just released Voodoo. And it's a really interesting interview because you do get a sense of the problems that are soon to beset him. At one point, he apparently discarded an entire album's worth of material with which he wasn't happy. More than once, the album was declared ready, even sent to the press, then recalled. It was said that the prospect of matching the phenomenal success of Brown Sugar had rendered him indecisive, overindulgent. I definitely had a whole other album. I was thinking about putting out a double thing, he says. The expectations were daunting. Naturally, I don't want to go backwards. I'm a perfectionist and I always want to aim higher with my music and get to another level. That's why I didn't buckle under to the pressure I was getting to make another record quickly. I wanted to take my time and make sure it was right. Which, you know, when you then know that it took him another 13, I mean, he, that really, really went under for a while and it took him 13 years to make another record after that. It's kind of just an interesting yeah. thing to read. He still hadn't learned to write a middle eight. <laughs> <laughs> but he was still making great records. Great, great like, records. Yeah. And, and I suppose the question, obvious question is, when are we going to have another D'Angelo record? It could be another 10 years, couldn't it? Another, yeah, yeah, yeah however well, many. It's been, it's been nearly, been 10, nearly years 10 years, years since, since Black Messiah. Which he only released because of, because, well, there was a particular reason, and even that could have taken a hell of a lot come I think it was the shooting of one of those unarmed oh, right. black victims yeah. by the police. And he literally put it out just before Christmas as a kind of statement. Otherwise it might not come out. You know, he'd probably have tinkered with it for another five years. Well, I, I just, I, yeah. I really like him as I've said many times, but so the next piece is take the power back black artist owned labels, Michael A. Gonzalez for the Red Bull Academy magazine, which is just a great retrospective. And he goes into five kind of great black, artist-owned labels, Sam Cooke's Saar Records, Curtis Mayfield's Curtum, James Brown's People, George Clinton's Uncle Sam and Prince's Paisley Park No Sugar labels. Hill. No Sugar Hill there. <laughs> well, yeah, true, true. But, but anyway, it's a, it's a great piece. It's well worth reading if you're interested in any of that. Yeah. And he mentions tons of fantastic music, and it's just a fascinating historical look at that. So I wanted to mention it. Sounds amazing. And lastly, from this week, Dave Simpson in The Guardian, Sean Paul's Teenage Obsessions. Um, my, my Coventry grandmother cooked me bubble and squeak. It's actually a really kind of heartwarming, nice interview with Sean Paul. It's interesting because, I mean, his, his grandma was from Coventry and then met a Chinese Jamaican man when he went to study in England. 
And then they went to Jamaica, and that's where Sean Paul is obviously from. But it's just nice. She always told me that she'd love to go to the pyramids in Egypt. So after I became successful, I made her dream come true. She said, it was hot. <laughs> She's 97 now and still kicking, an amazing woman. So oh, I, just, nice. I just like that. Yeah, it's nice. Lovely. Wonderful. Well, any closing words for us, Stephen? Um, not really. It's been uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. And um, has it been I, a roller coaster ride for you? It has it has been an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> and, I'm, and the only thing I'm disappointed in is that we didn't get to dissect the scene in the Sex Pistols recent series where they're watching Rick Wakeman on the television and they throw the TV out the window and it's still playing as it lands. <laughs> Are you saying oh, that dear. didn't happen? <laughs> <laughs> we may never know. <laughs> I I haven't seen it. I don't know. I couldn't get my... past the first episode. No, is it absolutely ghastly? No, I people. Okay. A lot of people I know really who like good stuff liked it. Okay. I think but, but... I think people I think people were so wary of having their natural reaction to it that they didn't want to be predictable. Yeah, so, shit. so there's a perverse. I certainly know a few influential people who said, "Yes, it's not bad. It's pretty, pretty good, actually. It's not. It's not." I think the thing that killed killed it for me before it even came out was they started releasing stills from it. And oh there's yeah. One, there's one where the whole band are raising the finger. British kids didn't raise the finger in that's 1977. Right. That's right. We flicked V's for fuck's sake. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. Yes, we and didn't the, the, know that you could just raise one finger. Just one. Didn't we? <laughs> we didn't know. It didn't the, happen. The, the, that that publicity picture actually launched a, a meme. There's a writer called David Keenan wrote a book called This Is Memorial mm, Device. Mm. There's an account on Twitter, Memorial Device. I don't know who does it. It's very, very good, very entertaining. And it just it put the simple thing up. It was a picture of these slightly chubby rada looking actors pretending to be the sex pistols and it just had the caption over it these men have never heard marquee moon <laughs> <laughs> and that and that's been repeated and repeated oh, it'll never, time. never get old oh, marvelous well thank you so much for joining us today Stephen. it's yeah, been thanks for having so me. entertaining and so interesting really lovely talking with you about all those multifarious aspects of your career and we look forward to you know hearing and reading more from you in, in time to come thanks thank you me. and mark are you going to talk us out? There's this one last clip from Stephen's suede interview. Yeah, it's it's about you know suede and will they take America and what will it take to take America? Yeah, and Steve, Stephen basically says no. At the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, so listen through to it. <laughs> anyway, we will be back in two weeks with another New Yorker. Jason King, who has a some august position at NYU, and we're hoping to talk to him Clive about Clive Davis Institute at the Clive Davis Institute. We're hoping to talk to him about Freddie Mercury and other matters. Until then, goodbye. Bye. 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 I mean, it's different. It's just bigger. You, know, you have to accept that a, a two-week tour of Britain is a ten-week tour of America because it's five times the size. Mm-hmm. But it's just that whole idea of of just kind of making it into a job. I mean, when we play a gig, it's quite an all-round emotional experience. We can't absolutely dance. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Lay face down for twenty minutes after because. We want it to be an event, it's not a promotional item.
It's like an in-store spine. Right. So, right. yeah, it's, it, does, it does wrench you. And it's, I, I don't know what we're going to be like trying to do that every night for eight weeks. I mean, perhaps we can do it, perhaps we can't. That's definitely, if we fall down, that's where we're going to fall down. Mm-hmm. Those are the, that's the, the mouse trap. Right. I, yeah, because a lot of people come to America probably not knowing that, just thinking, we'll take America. It's like the headline in the, in the enemy every week is invariably wonder stuff, take America, James mm-hmm. Rock America. No, they don't. They don't. And they don't take anything. Oh, they? Yes, exactly. And they don't. They don't really have. Uh, I think they wander in thinking that they're it, mm. kind of just because some record company people are nice to them and sure. stuff. That was Matt Osman and Brett Anderson of Suede in conversation with this week's special guest, Stephen Daly, in 1993, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to Stephen for joining us. You can find out more about him and his writing on his RBP Writers page. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. (laughs) 